It's always interesting to interview someone who's at the very top of their game, the top of their field. That's where we find Mike Breen. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Bishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment, the early years, the doubt, the obstacles overcome, the bad first jobs, the before the cheering started years. I first met Mike when we were both working on a great radio show in New York called Sports Night with Dave Sims on WNBC. Mike had already had some early struggles in the business and some doubt, but he survived and thrived. And it's been great to watch him ascend in his career as the longtime television voice of the New York Knicks, the network voice of the NBA and the NBA Finals, and then induction into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He always has a busy schedule, that's putting it mildly, never more so than during the NBA playoffs. Mike, from talking to athletes for more than a few years, there's the regular season and then there is the postseason, and they talk about preparation for postseason, especially the younger ones, uh, and also the veterans, too. So as someone who's done play-by-play for a long time, is there something different about the preparation for the postseason? That's a great question, Bud. Um, first off, it's it's two different sports. <laughs> the NBA regular season and the playoffs, it really is. It's like two different sports. Um, I think the preparation, for the most part, stays the same. But what I think you you change your focus a little bit. During the during the regular season, there's more time for maybe a little more entertainment. There's more time for personal anecdotes about players and teams and, you know, just fun stuff in the playoffs. I think it really becomes more about the game has to be the focus. And I'm not staying from opening tip to final buzzer, but I think it's more about what's happening on the court. Um, the strategy, the emotion, I think that takes center stage. And the other part, you know, Again, the personal stories and storytelling is a major part of it, but I think more of the focus for a lot of the playoff basketball is um, is on what's happening on the court and why. Because there's almost that notion of every possession, if not vital, but especially if it's a close game. I mean, if you're talking about a 20-point game in the fourth quarter, which in the playoffs, usually not. Uh, there's that notion, even in the second quarter, of, oh, they're up by four, they might be going up by six. So the time, and there's always great time for, you know, kidding around, but uh, is, is, is there some sense of, oh, each possession has a little more importance? No, no question about it. Although the NBA is so different today than it was even, right. say, 10 years ago. You know, the phrase today is, uh, watch the NBA, where 20-point leads go to die, because they, <laughs> they can go like that. I mean, it's incredible how quickly a lead can to just vanish. Uh, so from that standpoint, but you, you know, you still will have the time. I, I, I always remember, uh, I can't remember which finals it was. It was one of the golden state uh, Cleveland's finals and it was a blowout as a 35 point game. And uh, of course my partners, Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson decided to get into a debate on what was their favorite sitcom for the 1970s. So yeah, <laughs> When it, when it gets to that point, you got to figure out a way to keep the people entertained. What was your first year uh, post? What was your first postseason? First postseason was um, my first year doing the Knicks uh, yeah. on Knicks radio. And 
you know, back then for the first, say, seven, eight years, the Knicks were not only one of the best teams in the NBA, but they were a championship contender. But there was always a certain uh, fellow, number 23, who got in the way. And then when he finally moved out, a guy named Akeem Olajuwon got in the way. But <clears throat> those playoff games, that I first, like, you know, I thought, oh, I saw some great games during the regular season. And then all of a sudden you see the way the playoffs start. And from what you said, you know, that opening tip where every possession is defended with tenacity. Uh, every turnover is the emotion from a bad turnover on the bench from coaches. It's just, it's more than I've ever seen. And that really blew me away. And because, you know, the Knicks were so good back, my, my first year doing play-by-play was 92-93, and they were really good. Yeah. Um, so uh, from, from that standpoint, it was quite the awakening. So is there, you'd already done it, uh, you obviously done the whole regular season at that point, but is there any sense that you get in that first postseason that you're doing maybe externally of uh, people who are allegedly your friends, you know, saying to you, all right, you know, good luck tonight. You got to get this right. You know, this is a postseason. We're not we're not kidding around anymore. Well, you don't need friends to to tell you that because you realize that, you know, the playoff games are the most watched, the most listened to. Right. And you feel you feel a little extra pressure. And, you know, I've always said whenever I've talked to young broadcasters that every time you do something for the first time, um, you hyperventilate. At least I do. <laughs> but my first regular season game, I remember I must have been talking a mile a minute. And I couldn't stop. And it was it just because I, I was so fired up. And right. then you the first time you broadcast a game that's a one point game with a minute to go. You, you like you're beside yourself and you hyperventilate. And it's the same thing with the playoffs. Um, the first time you you do a playoff game and the first time you do a playoff game that comes down to the wire, you have to really watch yourself because you know the importance of it and you know how crazed that you can get and you know how crazed everybody is. So it's it's a matter of going through it each time to kind of be able to calm yourself and still, you know, do the job that you're required to do. Was there a person or either in the business or not who was able to say to you, it's okay, Mike, you can relax. You know, you're good. You're there for a reason and you don't, you don't have to speed up. No, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a good story in a minute, but I, I will say this to you, bud. Um, before every finals, game one, I get, I get just crazy butterflies every year. And I've been blessed to be able to do the finals for a long time now, but I still get before game one, those butterflies because you know there's a chance that there's going to be history made and you want to make sure that you properly document it and you want to do justice to what these great players are doing but my very first final uh, was in 2006 it was Dallas and Miami and my analyst was the great Yubi Brown so before the game I had um, a couple of ESPN executives say to me that um, now this is different the finals are different because you have so many casual fans who will be watching. So you might have to explain things that you normally wouldn't do because they don't know what's going on. So you have to explain. So I'm like my head. Okay. What do I, I'm nervous enough. as it is. <laughs> so I'm trying to think, what do I got to explain? And they reminded me of it on a number of occasions. So the game starts and I'm trying to think, all right, I got to feel the casual fans. I got to call the game. Got to feel the casual fans. And I mean, I'm probably exaggerating. I've never gone back and watched the first quarter, but I was like explaining ridiculous stuff that that even <laughs> watched a game. Like 
Guy goes to the free throw line. Now, these are called free throws, and you get two of them without anyone defending you. You know, like just, just ridiculous because I was consumed with doing the right thing here. And I was so taken out of my normal flow, and the nerves were so bad <clears throat> that Yubi Brown sensed it. And we go to the first time out, and Yubi grabs my arm. And when Yubi grabs your arm, you know it. And he says to me, hey, kid, just call the game the way you always do, and you'll be fine. And it's amazing, bud. That just completely, all the nerves went out of me. And I just started calling the game the way I did. So um, I credit Yubi for saving me what could have been a disastrous uh, NBA Finals debut. Growing up in Yonkers, New York, you're growing up and is the focus or the joy playing ball or announcing or both at the same time? Playing ball. Always playing ball. Uh, I was one of six boys and um, every day there was some kind of ball being played, whether it's wiffle ball in the yard, um, you know, football on the street. It just, there was always something. It, it was a running joke in the neighborhood. We grew up, my mother had a washer, but she didn't have a dryer. So every clothes that was washed was on the clothesline. Right. But on certain days was uh, sweat sock day. And I mean, the entire clothesline was filled with, and you're talking about, all these boys, and we all wore three socks every time we played. Remember back then, we always wore three yeah, socks. Sure. I mean, there could have been 100 to 150 sweat socks lined up. It's usually one day a week where my mother would, uh, would clean the sweat socks, and there they were, and the neighborhood thought that was the funniest thing. So to answer your question, absolutely play. I didn't really start thinking about even the idea of broadcasting till I was probably about 15 or 16. Uh, I know for me, it was, and I know you're a pretty good ball player. Uh, I know for me, it was Willis Reed basketball camp in 1971 when I learned that week that perhaps I should have a plan B as opposed to going to the NBA. Um, you, you, were, you were on your high school team, right? And you, you guys uh, went pretty far in the state championships. But is there a moment where eh, maybe uh, the notion of playing in college or maybe the pros, maybe that's not going to happen? Well, I played baseball and basketball in college. I was probably a better baseball player, but I just loved basketball that when I decided to go to Fordham, I thought, okay, I'm going to try out. I'm going to walk on. And they would have these runs when you first got on campus. And I was a commuter, so I'd drive over. And I got in a couple of the runs. And clearly, most of the players were, were so much better than me. But there were a couple of guys who were on the team that I thought I was as good at, if not better. And so I went to talk to Tom Penders, the head coach at the time, who is just such a he was such a great mentor and, and help for me when I was young and first got into broadcasting when I started at the college station. But I said to him, hey, I, I'm thinking of walking on. And he said, that'd be great. He says, but he goes, I got 12 guys on scholarship. He goes, and even if the 11th and 12th guy you're better than, I can't cut them for you because they're on scholarship unless you show me that you can play. If you just are going to be a bench guy, you're not going to be able to play. He goes, but if you show me you'll be in the rotation, then I could cut a scholarship guy. And I knew I had no shot at that. So that was probably the first time I said, okay, I think the I think uh, intramurals is the way to go. And I joined the college radio station. And uh, fortunately, it turned out to be a, a, the right choice. Seemed to have worked out okay. Uh, so when you're um, 15 or 16, what's that – initial instinct of, oh, the announcers, that's a, 
That's a pretty cool thing. Uh, let me think about that. And it had nothing to do with my love of watching sports. I mean, you know, I, I watched everything and had favorite announcers, but never once thought about announcing. But there was a, um, we used to play wiffle ball on this one street. There's about 12 of us. And there was a um, guy on the street who had his, built his own radio studio in his basement. And it only went to the room where everybody hung out in. It didn't go anywhere. But he used to play music and stuff. And, you know, after a couple of games of wiffle ball, we'd go hang out in his basement and, and just relax in the summer when he had air conditioning. And he would be like the DJ. His name was Tony Minicola. And I thought it was kind of cool what he was doing. So I would go back and I'd watch him a little bit. And one day he said to me, he goes, why don't you try? Why don't you, why don't you do a shift, as he called it? Because he, <laughs> he radio station like it was a real radio station. And he worked at a college station at New York Tech. Um, so I did it. And I, I right then and there, I was like, this is really cool. And I thought about, OK, I like this. And I like sports. And I like music. So my initial thing was I thought I'd be a DJ. Maybe I'd be a rock and roll DJ on WPLJ. Yeah. Uh, but that was the first bug that he he's responsible for me even putting into the head the idea of maybe going into announcing. And so do you go off to Fordham with that notion in mind or is is the world kind of wide open for you at that point? No, at that point, uh, by the time that, that was probably my sophomore, maybe junior year. But by the time I graduated, I was I was all in. I thought it'd be the greatest thing to do to get into broadcasting. And um, I originally wanted to go to away from college, you know, like most kids then. I don't want to I don't want to stay at home. I want to go room, get my own room, have a roommate and go right. have a great college. So I, I went to um, to visit the University of Hartford, which is a terrific school. And I saw on the pamphlet that they had they had a radio station and it looked really cool. So I drove up to Hartford and I think it was like January 3rd. Temperature was maybe two degrees. Nobody was <laughs> because it was the, the winter break. And I went to see the radio station and it was about the size of a closet. And I'm thinking, I can't, there's no way I could go here. And Fordham was kind of my safe school. It was the one at home. Um, and uh, so I, I wound up going to Fordham. And again, it turned out to be a great choice. The radio station was where I, you know, I wound up, I spent more time there than I probably did at my house during those four years. So for people outside of New York, WFUV, the Fordham radio station, is renowned not just as a great acoustic music station, but it's renowned for all of the sportscasters that it has produced, uh, numerous across the country. Uh, did it already have that reputation when you arrived? Yes, uh, it certainly did. And that was mainly because of one man, uh, Vince Scully, who, who was one part of the, the group that started the station. Um, and then it just it was known because it was a 50,000 watt station. That's as big as it gets in New York City at the time. And because the students ran the station. Right. So it, it right away. And when you walked in, it was very intimidating because the seniors had four years of being what they thought was professional broadcasters. And um, it just I could tell when I went to visit it that this this is the place, although I was so intimidated. When I first started there, I, I came very close to quitting. I, I told this story a number of times that I was just so intimidated. Everybody knew what they were doing. I had no clue what I was doing. Um, the, the upperclassmen were, you know, demanding, but in a good way. But I just I was lost and um, I didn't have any friends. None of, none of my uh, high school classmates had gone to Fordham, so I didn't know anybody. Uh, it was pretty pathetic. I would in between classes I've had a couple hours. I'd go sit in my car as opposed to sit at the, the campus uh, cafeteria. 
But one day I walked in and this guy was having this really fun argument with with uh, another student, a woman. And he's telling her how she wants he could tell in her eyes she wants to date him. And she's yelling back at him. Are you kidding? If you're the last man on earth, I would never go near you. And he's not taking no for an answer. And his friends are all laughing. At him. It was Michael Kay. And I didn't know him at the time, <clears throat> but after I saw him perform like this, and it was so funny the way he, he poked fun at himself and had fun with everybody, I introduced myself to him and he introduced me to, to all his buddies. And all of a sudden, you know, one day I have now 10 new friends. So I always credit Michael Kay with uh, keeping me at, at FUV and keeping the dream alive. Uh, during those years at Fordham, is there a sense of, I think I got something here. I think, uh, first of all, I love it. And second of all, I think I have an affinity for this. Or is there the element of doubt? Yeah, a great question, Bud. Um, by the time you finished, and and the beauty of at Fordham was you didn't just do play by play. You did updates. You hosted a sports talk show. I DJed classical music. I DJed rock and roll music. Uh, so you got a chance to to try everything. And when you're on the air enough, and you see improvement, like my first tape, I remember was awful. But when you see improvement. I started to think, okay, I got a chance. That's what I kept saying. I, I've got a chance at this. I don't know if it's going to work out, but I'm okay because I'm getting better and the more I do it. So well, I left Fordham thinking, okay, I've had four years of on-air experience at a college station, but it, what does it matter? I just was on the air. And I, I just remember saying to myself, okay, I got a chance to do this. I know from experience that uh, our friends who come out and they're going to go to some kind of graduate school, they kind of have their futures set, at least for that initial time, or people who are in, in fields that where they have jobs waiting in the fall and they go away for the summer. Uh, coming out, did you have something lined up or were there some moments of, you know, how's this going to work out? Where am I going to work? I, I had a great job lined up that I'd been working at for four years. I was parking cars at a country club. And nice. Making nice money too. <laughs> <laughs> there was no, uh, it's actually put me through college. I, I parked cars at Wingfoot and back in the day when a summer job could pay for tuition. Uh, so that's what I started doing soon after college and sending out all the tapes and resumes. Nothing, nothing happened till the fall. And, you know, you go through now it'd been four or five months, nothing's happening. You start to wonder, oh my goodness, what's what's the deal? But I kept doing it. And uh, finally, I my first job was at a small little radio station in Poughkeepsie where I was working one day a week. I would drive up from Yonkers where I still lived in my parents' home up to Poughkeepsie, cover a story, do a couple of tapes of that story, leave it for the morning anchor because it was not a 24 hour station. And then I'd drive back. Well, it, it cost me more money in gas to go back and forth than my pay, but it didn't matter because I was on the air and that turned into two days and that turned into three days. And, uh, and that was the start where, again, the key for me and for most people is um, you just need to get on the air and get reps in. And then you'll find out if, if you're any good at it and you'll find out if it's not for you. Uh, in those early months, uh, end of college, uh, that summer, as I, said, as I said, you're working at Wingfoot. Um, what's the family reaction like when you're talking about, no, this is still my goal. I'm going to do this. Well, my, you know, my dad, when I graduated and he did it out of just pure love for his son, he would have friends of his in other businesses, accounting, some kind of clerical work, work in a law firm, 
he was a steam fitter. He was in construction and had people from that call and tell me, hey, son, we can get you a job as soon as you graduate. So I knew I'd have a job because he knew how difficult it was. And as the months went on after graduation, he would say, say to me, hey, son, we've got this opportunity for you to work. And I always said to him, I was like, dad, I'm going to give it five years. If, if in five years I don't make any progress, then I'm going to become a steam fitter with you. We're all set. So about two and a half years in, I'm working up in Poughkeepsie. I, I did get that job and I'm still sending out tapes and resumes and I'm not getting any chance to move on to a better job. I'm not even getting notices that they received my tapes. So I'm not even getting rejected. And I was really depressed. And I, I called my dad so again, about two and a half years after I graduated. And I said, um, all right, send me the steam fitter application. I can't do this anymore. Cause I was asking them to help me pay the rent every month. And it just wasn't working out. And he said to me, he goes, I thought you said you were going to give it five years. He goes, why don't you, why don't you try a little longer? So I did. And in the next, uh, probably, I'm going to say four months after that, I got the biggest break of my career. And this is how we met at WNBC Radio when uh, Chris Doyle, who I went to college with, he was the producer at the sports talk show at night. And he needed somebody to produce one, one night a week that he was off. And that's that was the biggest break to to get down there to WNBC, and that turned into a full time job eventually, and that's how we met. Before we get to that, uh, it, it seems like a world away. The steam fitter you're talking about, right? Your father, and yeah. announcing nationally the NBA finals. But is there a thread? Is there something that you saw growing up from your folks, spoken or unspoken? that translates into the work you do? Um, I don't know if it translates into the specific work I do, but it translated into how I approach my job. Um, you know, my father worked so hard every day of his life to raise, raise all these boys. And, you know, there were some days he'd get up and I knew he didn't want to go to work. And on Sundays, he was not happy that he had to go to work the next day because it was tough, hard labor, um, but he never missed a day. I mean, he just got up and he went to work every day. And I, I, I found, you know, the respect to have for the man to do that because that's the way he took care of his family. Um, and the work ethic was just off the charts and that stuck with me. So I knew that if I was gonna do this, this broadcasting, there might be some difficult times and I might get knocked down but if I continue to work hard, at least I could say at the end, whether I made it or not, was I gave it my best shot. So I think from that standpoint, um, I think my father's influence on it is the way he uh, the way he just he had his great work ethic. That and, and the other thing, um, my parents always seemed to know. Know everybody and had a kind word for everybody. And I, I saw the way they were. And I, I just, I always admired that on how, no matter who the person was, my father always had time for them, always had time for a kind word if they needed help. And, and that's, that's one of the biggest influences that, uh, that my mother and father had on me because they just treated people, the old expression, they always treated people the way you want to be treated. Right. Now, aside from perhaps following into your father's work, was there any other, during those lean times, was there any other possible plan B that you considered? No, there was, there was no plan B, but I was in some trouble. 
uh, it was, I could always go back and park cars again. And then the stream fitters, because I was pretty much guaranteed to get into the union because he knew everybody. Uh, so he'd get me in there and I'd get work. Um, so from that standpoint, no, there, there was absolutely no plan B. Although I, I, I will say this now that I, you're making me remember, uh, I refereed for a while uh, to make money. I first started grammar school. Then I got up to high school JV. Then I got the high school varsity ball. And I eventually got up to junior college. And I would say that I, I always thought I was a pretty good referee. And I had older referees tell me that they thought I had a future in it. Um, so that was something that I thought of doing if the broadcasting didn't work out. But that's they were right around the same time where I was starting to get better work as a broadcaster. And it was impossible to do both. So I had to completely give up the refereeing, which to this day, I, I look back on so fondly with the friendships and, and the experience that it gave me. So you uh, get to WNBC, and uh, shortly thereafter, I join as the Yankee reporter in 1986. And I, I probably should know this because I was around you a decent amount, but I, I don't. At that point, it's like, oh my, this is it. This is, I have, I have, you know, this is great. It's a sports job in New York. It's a huge station. Or is there already a notion of, Okay, is there a strategy like, okay, if I do this, then I can get here, then I want to do this, and I want to do this, or in those first maybe year at WNBC, is it just, no, this is it, and better just focus on this? Well, um, yes and no. Yes, and that to be at that station at the time, Imus was in the morning, Soupy Sales was at midday, and Howard Stern was in the afternoon when I first started there. There was no hotter station in the country, um, but I was not on the air. I was producing and my goal was still to be on the air. So I thought maybe this would be a great way for me to meet a lot of people and maybe get on the air. Cause I was still trying to do play by play on the side. I did Marist college basketball um, for their cable TV station. Uh, I did Seton hall radio for uh, uh, with John Clossy, who is the play by play voice. I was his actually analyst. So I kept my, my hand in announcing. Uh, but this was a full-time producer's job. And, and as much as I probably would have been able to do that, if that's the way it turned out, I still had dreams of uh, being on the air and being an announcer. When you would substitute host the show or host the show when Dave Sims wasn't doing it, you know, uh, Yonkers is in the listening area. Ever anybody from uh, junior high school? Hey, Mike, it's Joe Schmo from junior high. How are you? Oh, of course, you know, you know that. I mean, that's yeah. uh, people always found a way to get in because there weren't many. This was before WFAN. The only sports talk show was at the Fordham radio station and Art Rush Jr. had one on WABC. So it's not like people were in tune to calling in. Like there, sometimes we'd have shows and you'd have to call in yourself as the producer. <laughs> people to start calling. Um, and there'd be certain guests that the phones would light up and certain guests nobody would call. Um, but every once in a while, you'd get somebody. And it, you were so embarrassed when, when somebody would do that, but you, you, you understood it. So it, <laughs> it did happen once in a while. you recall where you were when you got the call that the Knicks radio job was yours? Um, I was in my home. We were living in Roslyn at the time. My wife and I, we had... Um, one child at the time with a second one on the way. And I remember um, getting off the phone and saying to my wife that um, I, I got the Nick job and I got emotional 
And a short time after that, I got a call congratulating me and welcoming me to the team. And that was Marv, Marv Albert. And that's the one that kind of, you know, just just blew it away for me because, you know, I, I, I remember being back at Fordham when Michael Kay and I became friends. And you, if I told you this story, I apologize for repeating it. But we would sit in the cafeteria together as students. And I would, you know, I talk about my dream job is to be the Nick announcer. He would talk about his dream job would be the Yankee announcer. And we'd laugh and people, if somebody was with us, they'd look at us, are you two fools? What are you talking about? So for it to come to that, you know, that's one of those moments where dreams really do come true. And um, I I remember being pretty much overcome with with emotion when I got the call. I couldn't believe it. The man I have to thank for that is Mike McCarthy. He was the executive who, who had to convince the people at the garden to hire me. Pretty good call on Mike's on Mike's on Mike's account. Um, it is said time, by the way. What's, he, what's reminds, that? he reminds me all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's said that perhaps we shouldn't meet our heroes, our sports heroes, our musical heroes, especially from our youth, because you never know what can happen. And then there are the times when we do. And it's a beautiful thing. And on a not nightly basis, but for so many years, you and Walt Frazier have worked together. And Walt Frazier, in our eyes growing up, was, let's just say he was up there. Uh, Is there some lesson you take away from that friendship and from that professional relationship? Well, it's one of the joys of my life. And it's still sometimes hard to believe because He's, he's a special, special person. And um, to say now that I've had this lifetime friendship with number 10, who, <clears throat> when I was 10, I put up a poster of him in my house in Yonkers. Yeah. That's still there. It's still hanging up. My mother still lives in the same house and the poster's still up. Um, it sometimes is surreal. And, and, but I can't explain it. But for some reason, now, when I, when I found out, I got the job, I was so intimidated to work with Clyde. Uh, and, you know, the initial meeting and the initial we did a, uh, a demo game, I was so nervous. But for some reason, we just clicked right away, both on and off. Um, I think it was probably because I, I carried his luggage on every road trip and made sure his dry cleaning was delivered. <laughs> but no, it just we just hit it off from from the get go. Um, and it's um, it's like I said, it's it's one of the true joys of my life. I've learned so much of from him about the game, about New York, uh, about how he grew up and the difficulties he grew up in a segregated South. Um, he's just taught me so much that um, I, I can't I can't imagine working with anybody else doing the games. You've done a wonderful job also as his clothier, by the way. <laughs> yes, I mean, sometimes he fights me. He doesn't want to be that, that outlandish and flashy, but... Yeah. Oh, Clyde, it works with you. So let's 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 give it a shot. <laughs> Is there anything from the early years, either growing up or maybe those years, you know, the early years when you don't the time when you don't have a job or you're working at Poughkeepsie? Are there any lessons from those years that still kind of affect your work today? Yes. Um, and that's, you know, I've been blessed my entire life with incredible people starting with my parents and my brothers and then friends and everything I've ever been able to obtain or attain 
is um, is because of help I had from somebody else. It's it's incredible how many people are there. And I when I was very blessed to go into into the Hall of Fame, the thing I said was I wish during the speech I could bring everybody who helped me up here on the stage, but there's not a stage built anywhere in the world big enough to hold that many people. So that's what I've learned that I've had incredible help, could never do it alone. And I've tried to do that in the way I've carried myself in the profession by helping other people, you know, the old pay it forward thing. But that's, that's what stayed with me all my life that I've been blessed with so many beautiful and wonderful people. Well, it's been a joy to watch you. It really has. And it was a joy to watch you in 1986. And it's a joy to watch you now and all the years in between. Uh, you know, it's an old expression in an old movie. It's nice when nice happens to nice. Uh, and that's certainly the case. And not just nice, but incredibly talented as well. So well, thank you. Then thank you for, for your years of friendship. You and Clyde ever go one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, you know, we did back... I don't know if you remember, he had Clyde's fantasy basketball camp up in yeah. Club Getaway in Connecticut. And I did then. It, I went up with Bernard McGurk, of all people, my buddy Bernie. God God rest his soul. Um, and that's that's the only time I did it. But I love when you told me about the Willis Reed thing and how Willis was hands-on. Oh, yeah. Grand the camp. Willis I told, loved that camp. Um, the night... The first night that we were on the air after Willis passed, Clyde and I, the whole game, we talked about Willis. And I told the story how, um, how you said that Willis was, wasn't just his name on the marquee. He was the one in charge. It's a special team. It was a special time. Yep. And you're creating memories for young kids right now. You're helping to create memories that are making it special, too. Well, uh, I don't know about that, but that's, that's, that's kind of you to say. Thank you, buddy. Mike Breen. If you're looking for him over the next few months, or any spring for that matter, just turn on the TV. It's the playoffs. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.